welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find Medium Cool at Medium Cool Pod on social media. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod and we'll pop up on Instagram and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Hey, you know what? While you're at it, find me at Austin Glidden on Twitter, and uh, you can berate me for having feelings about things. Um, With all that said, though, uh, today is a really awesome and exciting episode because we're going to be talking about Wong Kar Wai, a Hong Kong film director who has done really great, uh, very artistic and unique films. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about uh, Chunking Express and Fallen Angels from 94 and 95, respectively. They uh, were originally... Uh, you know, the concept of them was actually to be one long film, and then uh, Wong Kar Wai separated them. Uh, this is how we're celebrating his birthday, though. Uh, Chunking Express has always been my favorite film of his, but I hadn't seen it until, you know, until watching it for this podcast. I hadn't seen it for 15 years or something. And uh, Jake's favorite Wong Kar Wai film, coincidentally, was Fallen Angels. So it just seemed perfect for us to talk about these. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a great time. We'll get to that shortly. Normally, though, or at least as of recently, uh, I've been doing a lot of solo reviews or like little thoughts on uh, movies or little histor- like history lessons or whatever uh, leading into our long-form conversations. And, uh, you know, I've been so busy this week. You know, we've, I've, had, uh, been, I've been super busy at work. We had my daughter all week, which is always a blast, but we were doing stuff with her uh, in the evenings after work. And then Friday, my friend uh, Riley, shout out to Riley, by the way. Uh, if you're listening to this, Riley, uh, you should text me and call me a bitch. Anyways, so, uh, you know, we, we watched a ton of movies. I thought what I would do instead of solo reviews and instead of kind of like making it a segment, I thought before we get into our long-form conversation, I was going to look at my letterboxed diary, as we say, that tells me all the films that I've watched because I keep that up to date. And uh, since the last time I talked about things that I watched, which I was watching neo-noir as of last week, and I had watched Blood Simple, and I watched The Hit, and I watched uh, Body Double and stuff like that, but since then, since the last episode, I've watched quite a bit of things. Uh, of quite a bit of titles, and and uh, I thought I would share a few of them with you because I am curious. You know, you can hit me up on uh, Letterbox. You can also find me at Austin Glidden on Twitter. As I said, uh, let me know what you think of some of these. I would love to hear other people's perspectives on these movies. Again, Chunking Express and Fallen Angels were movies that uh, I had watched this weekend as well. I won't cover those right now, of course, because we're going to be doing a long form on them. But the uh, the first film I watched since last week's episode. For the first time, I saw Ron Howard directed, uh, George Lucas produced film from 1988, Willow. Now, I'm a huge fan of old fantasy movies and everything, uh, but Willow I had never seen, and I honestly don't know why. Uh, this you know stars Warwick Davis and Val Kilmer, Joan Wally, um, you know Gene Marsh is in. There's tons and tons of people, um, and it has these like uh, Star Wars wipes. If you know what I mean, for transitions where it just wipes across uh, the screen, which was very confusing to me because it was like, wait, this isn't Star Wars and it's like very much Star Wars. But dude, this movie is a pretty awesome fantasy movie back whenever fantasy movies would actually get, you know, pretty substantial budgets and we get wide releases. And the last time that we had something like that, like legitimately not counting the Harry Potter series, which Warwick Davis was also a part of, uh, was Lord of the Rings. Whenever we had like a real hard, you know, fantasy type story. So it was really fun to watch uh, Willow. I actually had a really great 
time with it. I didn't think it was perfect by any means, but uh, I think, uh, you know, I was on Facebook. The reason I watched it is on Facebook, uh, our friend uh, Christopher Lloyd from the Film Yap was talking about how he feels like this is kind of an underrated classic. Like, a lot of people know about it, of course, and a lot of people have seen it, but they don't really like it that much. And he thought it was just like a really great thing to, you know, watch with your kids or uh, even just watch yourself. And dude, I actually agree with him. I think it's great. I give it a three and a half out of five. Um, that's still a positive uh, rating. It's, again, it's not perfect, but it was really fun. If you haven't seen Willow, you know, go check it out. It, it's really cheesy at times and there's really cool st- uh, stop motion animation for like really big monsters and stuff. It's just a really cool picture. And then uh, we already talked about this, I believe, last week, maybe, uh, with Matt Sosi. I talked about The Virgin Spring. I rewatched that with my friend Riley because we, um, since The Last House on the Left, the Wes Craven film from 1972, we watched that as well, back to back, because I had never seen The Last House on the Left by Wes Craven. He had never seen Bergman's The Virgin Spring, so I thought, man, we should watch The Virgin Spring so you can see it, which, of course, I think is a five-star movie. I think it's perfect. And then, you know, I'll watch The Last House on the Left, which I don't like nearly as much. But wow, like, what an insane movie. Who sees that shit in 1972 and survives? Like, I can't imagine how absolutely terrified I would be watching Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left in 1972. Oh, my God. I mean, this is before The Exorcist. This is before Texas Chainsaw. This is before Carrie. This is before uh, Halloween. Dude, this movie's insane. Of course, you know, it has a whole legacy and a reputation. You know, it was banned at one point. It, you know, hit, like, theaters and then was, like, taken out. All, all the, I mean, if you look up the crazy story of The Last House on the Left, it's worth seeing just so you can experience what the reputation uh, that it holds is about, you know, uh, it, it's a really cool movie. I still would only give it about two and a half out of five. I'm pretty indifferent on it overall, but man, watching it for the first time, uh, I still would say like, definitely go check this movie out. It's wild. And if you're open to really fucked up movies, like the next one I'm actually about to talk about too, but if you're in like really disturbing movies, this one is just really sadistic and kind of bonkers, and you do see some similarities between it and The Virgin Spring, uh, which was also really interesting, and kind of made it a better experience overall, but honestly, I don't think the film's great, granted, it also wasn't necessarily made to be, or had the budget or anything to be, you know, much better, I think Craven did a fine job, but this is one of those movies also that is polarizing, I feel like people fucking hate that movie, or they really appreciate it, I am one of those people that's in the middle, but I'm really, really glad that we watched it, The Virgin Spring and Last House on the Left, uh, the original from 1972, really cool, then we watched Chunking Express and Fallen Angels, which I'll get to in our long-form conversation with uh, Jake Bottolieri, but then we watched Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built, now, I'm a big Lars von Trier fan, even though I think he, as a human, is uh, you know often problematic, and he's a really ridiculous person. But in terms of the films that he produces, I often love them. And Dancer in the Dark is one of my all-time favorites. We will definitely be talking about that. If we ever talk about musicals on here, or if we do, you know, at some point, I will do it a part of my, as a part of my, uh, my pick for uh, my favorites pantheon. Whenever I pull from that, this Dancer in the Dark will be one of them. Bjork in it, uh, it's absolutely great, and that's from the year 2000, but 2018, uh, he made a film called The Year, or The House, rather, The House That Jack Built, and this is a film that had a reputation coming into it, a lot of people just kind of, you know, hate 
Lars von Trier now just on principle because a lot of his films are, and I would agree, you know, usually have pretty misogynist tendencies uh, or whatever um, aspects to them. Certainly have, uh, there's some misogyny at play there. Uh, this film's no different. But, you know, uh, for, for as misogynistic as and as cruel to women as this film can be, we're also, I want it to be very, very clear. We're talking about a Lars von Trier film where the protagonist is a serial killer who at the very beginning of the film says, I'm going to tell you about five different parts of my life, all of which are murders. Uh, and it's fucked up. And it's also fucking hilarious. If you've ever seen Man Bites Dog, another film that we'll probably talk about with my favorites, Pantheon. Uh, Man Bites Dog was made, I think, in 91 or 2, 92. Um, it, it was, uh, I think, a Belgian film. It's in French. Uh, it's a mockumentary of sorts. It's a dark, super dark, morbidly dark comedy. Okay, we're getting into, like, extreme dark comedy at this point. And uh, uh, Man Bites Dog, uh, which we didn't watch this weekend, but I'm just using this as a comparison here. Man Bites Dog is a, a fake documentary where this crew finds the serial killer, and they decide to just follow him around. And then, you know, as the time goes on, they start to actually get involved in his murders. And, dude, it's super funny, but it's also really fucked up. And the house that Jack built feels that way to me. They feel like very different movies, but that that dynamic is definitely a play here. Lars von Trier makes certain moments so funny, but dude, there are moments where that humor continues and it goes overboard to the point where it's not funny anymore and it's just disturbing. And I actually think the humor is is really important to that disturbing factor. Uh, I think the film is uh, is... It's a really strong, well-made movie. I honestly think that the performances are great. Uh, Matt Dillon's in it, which when was the last time you saw him where we're like, dude, that dude fucking rules. Dude, he's so good in this. Uh, I thought he was so great in this. Um, there is uh, There are more to the great cast. You know, Bruno Gans is in it. Uh, Uma Thurman's in it. Uh, all, all kinds of Jeremy Davies, if you know who that is. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce some of these names, but you'll recognize a lot of their faces um, it's, it's really intense, but I can't stress enough how intense this movie will be for a lot of viewers, especially casual moviegoers. This is not the film for you probably. Okay. Um, you know, if you've seen his film Antichrist, I think you'll be fine. Um, because I think that's far more fucked up than this in many ways, uh, in large part, because this is actually pretty humorous. Like I actually think it's funny a lot of the time. Uh, but man, yeah, it's it's funny, it's disturbing, it's provocative. Um, but it, at, at the same time, I see it as you know fairly pretentious as well, as if the film's attempting to deceive its audience that it's more meaningful than it actually is. It's actually a pretty shallow, ultra violent film. But again, it's a Lars von Trier film about a protagonist that is a serial killer. Come on, like what's it going to be? Uh, so, anyways, I actually like it though. I gave it a three and a half out of five. Uh, maybe it deserves more in some aspects. Other parts of it just seemed kind of like cruel, but it didn't bother me per se, but it just wasn't interesting. Uh, we can talk more about this uh, if you're interested. Like I said, hit me up and let me know if you're interested in hearing more about this. I will happily, happily talk about it. Uh, so moving on, uh, that was The House That Jack Built. I also got into the Criterion Channel, uh, their neo-noir uh, program that they have going on right now, their marathon, so to speak. And I watched The Eyes of Laura Mars, the Eyes of Laura Mars is a, a neo-noir uh, from 1978. Um, it is uh, directed by, let me remind myself, Irvin Kirshner, 
who also did uh, Empire Strikes Back, which is a huge thing. This movie's not like Empire Strikes Back, so please don't get too excited. Uh, but it has uh, Faye Dunaway. It has uh, a very early film for Tommy Lee Jones. Of course, he'd been working that whole decade, but this is kind of a higher-profile movie he was in. It's very strange to see him this young because his face still looks old to me. It's very strange. Anyways, um, but uh, they're, they're great cast. There's a lot of people you'll recognize here. Um, and it's basically about a famous fashion photographer that develops this disturbing ability to see through the eyes of a killer. And so uh, they have some fun. They play with that whole idea. It's pretty good. Um, it's also kind of a mess at times. And, um, you know, it's it's widely accepted as a film that uh, kind of took the Italian gallo uh, kind of horror uh, genre that they have and kind of did they called them American Gallo films uh, this was one of the early ones that people consider whether you agree with that statement or not doesn't matter if you look this film up you'll probably see Gallo tied to it in some way um, you know and I and I, uh, my buddy Riley would agree with me too I believe again Riley if you're listening to this and I'm you know misrepresenting you here just text me and call me a bitch so um, anyways, uh, like Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill is probably closer to that like American Gallo style, uh, I'd probably say. But Eyes of Laura Mars is, is pretty interesting. Again, it gets really cheesy. I fucking hate the end of this movie. But it's only like the last five minutes. So like the, re- the journey, like neo-noir, noir, film noir from the 40s and 50s, as well as neo-noir, especially once you get into the 70s and 80s. It's all about the journey to me. It's all about that mystery. It's all about moving forward with it. If the end is lackluster or not great, it doesn't ruin the journey. The journey was still fun. If you take a road trip and you go to a place, and when you get there, that place is actually really boring and you're expecting it to be awesome, does it negate how fun the actual road trip part of it is? If you're with friends and you're having great conversations, you're listening to music, singing at the top of your lungs, having great conversations, that might completely triumph over the lackluster nature of the destination. And that's how I feel about a lot of neo-noir. So overall, I was positive on the film, uh, but Eyes of Laura Mars is not great. Uh, I give it a three out of five. Um, Then uh, my buddy Riley and I jumped into uh, the Japanese noir program that is on uh, the Criterion channel. I can't stress enough how cool the Criterion channel is. You should definitely go check it out. If you have a Roku or a smart TV, you should be able to access it. They don't have apps on stuff like PS4, Xbox, which I think is completely criminal. So Criterion, I know you've been trying for a while, but please get that on there. I have a feeling that your subscriptions will just go way up. But anyways, uh, I use a really old Roku that's frustrating, and I still do it because I love this this channel. It's a great streaming service. So uh, my buddy Riley and I watched uh, two Japanese noirs. We watched Black River, uh, which is from 1957, and then we watched Pale Flower from 1964. And uh, you know, Black River is interesting. It's di- it's directed by Masaki Kobayashi. Uh, he did a bunch of really great stuff. Uh, he did Harakiri, which will be a part of my favorites pantheon, I'm sure, as well. He did Kaidan. Uh, he did Samurai Rebellion. Um, if you're into Japanese cinema, especially stuff like pre-70s, especially if you get into like that new wave, which new wave was still happening in the 70s, but that 60s, uh, if you're into like 60s people in cool suits, stuff like that, man, this, this movie uh, might be for you, and Kobayashi might be for you as well. Um, Black River's fine. 
Uh, I was very indifferent on this as well. This is an early Kobayashi film, so uh, you know it's very culturally driven. It is very much about the politics of the time. Uh, you know, there are some yakuza type figures in it. I don't, I don't know if I ever confirmed whether they were actual yakuza or not, but they use a lot of language that would lead you to believe so. And you know, it's very much against this everyman versus this, uh, this. Uh, kind of Yakuza type figure. Uh, but the film goes into much different places. I didn't find it particularly interesting, to be honest. Um, and I wasn't overly impressed, especially knowing co- where Kobayashi will go later. Uh, this, much like some of my Ingmar Bergman, my early Bergman movies I watched, though they were good, and this is good, though they were good, they didn't impress me nearly as much as he would go on to and show just the the, the true extent to which he can create wonderful art. Kobayashi is that way as well. I gave this a two and a half out of five. Um, and, you know, that's where I stand. Uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong. Then we watch Pale Flower, as I mentioned. Uh, Pale Flower is uh, a 1964 film by Masahiro uh, Shinoda. Uh, Shinoda is another really, really famous figure that would go on to make movies like Samurai Spy, Double Suicide, um, Ballad of Oren. Um, I'm just kind of like scanning. Uh, there are so many movies on here to name, I'm not going to. But the point is, you know, he, he's a prominent figure, especially in the Japanese New Wave as well. And uh, Pale Flowers from 1964, and uh, man, it, this is like, man, you're in gambling halls and shit in this. It looks cool. The sound design is awesome. The restoration looks incredible. It's this really crisp black and white, uh, but all the uh, the set designs, the uh, the outfits, the cool, the, dude, the performances are actually really good. This is a point where the Japanese uh, style started going from these kind of boisterous caricatures characters where who seem to be yelling all the time to like pretty reserved, more realistic uh, depictions of things. And so uh, there is a lot of uh, a lot of the characters are pretty reserved. The performances seem a lot more uh, kind of believable and what I would maybe call immersive. Maybe I, I might not be using the right word there, but hopefully you understand what I mean. Uh, it was very easy to kind of get into this. Uh, again, it's about uh, largely about gambling. There are Yakuza in it. I mean, it's it's a crime picture, but man, I actually really like this. I give this a four out of five. This is a, a really good picture. You should definitely check it out. It is on the Criterion channel. And last but not least, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, 2017 Ghost in the Shell live action uh, movie. Boy, is this movie a mess and at the same time kind of cool. I don't even exactly know how to go into this. If you're not a fan of the original Ghost in the Shell anime, I still think you might enjoy this. Uh, maybe you'll hate it too. I don't know. Uh, if you're not a fan of the old Ghost in the Shell, though, shame on you because it is fucking amazing. But anyways, um, but uh, if you haven't seen the original anime, I would encourage you to go check that out. Uh, I'll be doing an anime marathon at some point in probably next year. Um, but when I do, that will be one that we talk about. But this this remake is by Rupert Sanders. Uh, and it has Scarlett Johansson as the main character. Beat Takashi's in it. Uh, Michael Pitt's in it. Uh, Juliette Binoche's in it. I mean, there's tons of, of uh, actors that you would know in this as well. This is pretty much like blockbuster-level stuff. It had a budget of $110 um, million, but I think it only made like 168 back. So that's not a huge success for that level of budget and how kind of big this film is. The special effects look like a fucking video game half the time, which is kind of strange because it's not that they look bad, but they're like noticeable. Uh, the story definitely kind of... It's similar to the anime, but it does kind of veer off a bit. A lot of people say it's a shot for shot, which is just unequivocally untrue. Uh, but, you know... 
the first 30 minutes of this, I was like, I wish all like Marvel movies and all like blockbuster action adventure movies were this movie because I loved the pacing. It wasn't super lightning fast. It took its time. It was breathing. It's like colorful and the, the visuals were interesting. And then it just starts to really go downhill. Um, I'll just say now I gave it a two and a half out of five. I'm still questioning that rating. Uh, if anything, it would go down to a two. Uh, but two and a half, I didn't hate the experience. I'm glad I saw it. I don't really care if I ever see it again. It gets really convoluted while also simplifying the story of the original anime. Uh, the performances are pretty good. Uh, but man, this movie just feels kind of like a mess. If you've seen the Ghost in the Shell remake and you loved it, I would love to hear why. Uh, I've already read plenty of why people hate it. But if you're someone who loves it, hit me up at Austin Glidden on Twitter. I would love to hear your thoughts about any of these I mentioned. And hopefully this will suffice for my kind of early uh, like reviews or thoughts on movies that I normally do. Hopefully this is good enough. And uh, I get to share a lot of what I watched this weekend because my buddy Riley and I watched a lot of stuff. That's what we do when he shows up. So, you know, next time he visits, maybe I'll do this again. But without further ado, though, we got to get into Wong Kar Wai because, you know, he is the man of honor. Uh, happy birthday to him. Uh, he's still out there. His last film was in 2013. He's working on a TV series apparently right now. Uh, you know, he hasn't been uh, doing much. But, man, in the 90s, this guy was something. I'm telling you. All the way to 2000, In the Mood for Love is just a real classic. Of course, he did some good stuff after still, but... Um, that's really just, I mean, you're really starting to see Wong Kar Wai uh, at his best in that era. And these two films are in the mid-90s, 94 and 95. So we're going to talk about them. I'm going to bring Jake Bottelieri in, my friend who did the Cassavetes Marathon. He's been on here a few times. Um, we did the uh, the first reform, the, the um, Paul Schrader movie. Uh, we, we talked about that. Well, we're about to talk about Wong Kar Wai, so you stay tuned. I'll be right back. All right, everybody, today we are celebrating Wong Kar Wai's birthday by watching Chunking Express and Fallen Angels, two films that were originally imagined as one and instead became a loose duology, as I'm going to call it. Is that what they call them? Duology? That makes That's sense. what I'll call them now. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I will call them now as well, because uh, that's a good word. Anyways, uh, but we're going to start with Chunking Express because it is the first in the chronology here. Came out in 1994, written and directed by Wong Kar Wai, uh, the man of the hour. Uh, maybe hour and a half. We'll see how long this goes. Maybe half an hour. Maybe we just won't have enough yeah. to talk about. But anyways, <laughs> uh, the release date was July 14th, 1994. It was the Hong Kong release, but we got it here in the U.S. March 8th, 1996. And Chungking Express follows two melancholy Hong Kong police officers that fall in love. One with the mysterious underworld blonde-wigged female the other with a beautiful and ethereal waitress at a late-night restaurant he frequents. The great Christopher Doyle is the cinematographer for the film, and uh, he just shoots this thing as if it's a dream or something, floating around the film. You know, he has really great uh, still shots uh, where you get to kind of take in the moment, but uh, he just kind of floats around sometime. I love Christopher Doyle. We're going to talk about that guy. Um, but yeah, he just floats around capturing these beautiful moments that you know often seem mundane, but that provide an introspective experience. The characters wander through the film much like we do as viewers, and Wong Kar Wai tackles some reoccurring themes that we see in most, if not all, of his films, those of loneliness and solitude. 
For the longest time, Chungking Express was my favorite film personally by Wong Kar Wai, though In the Mood for Love was always a very close second. I had never seen Fallen Angels before, uh, before this. Um, and though I personally think, you know, In the Mood for Love is a better film outside of my bias, Chungking Express still holds a pretty soft spot in my heart. Uh, Chungking star uh, the Chinese-born Hong Kong singer-songwriter Fei Wong, whom I absolutely adore, and she's so great. Um, and when I first saw this film probably 15 years ago, I had a screen crush on her. Oh, God. Anyways, we also get a great soundtrack, uh, mostly made up of California Dreamin' by the Mamas and Papas, played like 18 times. Um, and then uh, we also get uh, the Fei Wong version of The Cranberries' Dreams, which I thought was the signature track of the film. I thought this was played so many times, rewatched it like twice. It's only, um, yeah, it's only twice, I think. <laughs> it's But it's so great. Like, it, even if you put the Criterion Blu-ray in, that's the track on the menu, right? Like, that right. thing just looped, drove my wife crazy. Anyways, uh, all that to say, Wong Kar Wai has said that he wanted Chungking Express and Fallen Angels to be the same film, only three hours long instead of each of them being around half that. We will address that when we get to Fallen Angels, okay? We will definitely talk about that. But as for Chungking Express, Jake... Does this film connect with you? You know, what, what are your thoughts? And if it does connect with you, how so? Yeah, um, I think I saw Chungking Express for the first time in college. And I, th this is one of those rare situations where I don't think it was the result of someone suggesting I watch it or anything else. This was like a true internet age only child recommendation. And by that, I mean, I think I just stumbled upon it on a Wikipedia rabbit hole or something like that, either because I was really into, you know, I've, I've been really into Hong Kong cinema since high school, but the lion's share of that time was just kind of devoted to watching the same three John Woo movies over and over again. <laughs> yeah. So, but before Hard we boiled, did this, I was the killer. Yeah, What's the other one? <laughs> better tomorrow, probably. Yeah. Um, before we did this, I was actually trying to remember the circumstances surrounding the first time I saw Chungking Express and I couldn't remember. So I think it was just like some sort of weird Wikipedia rabbit hole when I was really, really at that age where you're like seeking out new stuff. And I must have ordered the DVD off of Amazon or something. Um, I think that DVD is still with an ex-girlfriend right now, unfortunately. Oh, but no. uh, lucky for me, uh, all of all of his films are streaming on Criterion Channel right now. So Dude. Um, it had an immediate impact on me. I, I, I think, obviously, um, the visual style is just so striking. I mean, in all of Wong Kar Wai's movies, all of the ones that, you know, uh, Christopher Doyle shot, especially, they have that look. But I, I think there was something about what I was going through at the time in my life that really, really made me nostalgic for that, like, 90s, urban dynamic. I've never lived in Hong Kong, obviously, but um, a combination of the visual style and the music, I think just like automatically hooked me in. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the plot just is something that I think most people can relate to, at least in certain stretches of their lives. And definitely thinking of myself uh, as a 19, 20 year old, I could definitely relate to, uh, you know, being lovesick around a late night food stand. So... You know, uh, uh, the first cop. Uh, I I am I am going to try my best. His name's is the actor's name is Takeshi uh, Kaneshiro. Yeah. 
Ziwu. I don't know how to say his name. I feel like I'm just going to yeah, insult every say, individual. You could just but, say uh, Cop 223, um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Cop 223. We'll go with that. Cop 223, Cop 663. Uh, Cop 223, that's the plot part that you connect with, right? Like, that's the one that you start with. That's the one where the guy just got broken up with a month ago, and he's just trying mm-hmm. to live life and figure it out. You know, he's sad, he's lonely, doesn't know what to do with his life. I mean, it's so great. But before I jump into that, though, uh, talking about the our origins of being introduced to this, I was in a Hollywood video, like, like video rental store or whatever, and it was in Muncie, Indiana, and there was this <clears throat> random, I don't know, like shelving unit of just really random movies. I don't even remember yeah. exactly what it was. I don't know if it was just international or what it was, but I didn't know like any of them at the time. This was probably right around when I first got started into film. So around 2003, maybe before, maybe a little after, but it was just right around that time where I was getting into it. And I saw Quentin Tarantino's face at the top of this DVD box. Mm. And it said, Quentin Tarantino presents Chunking Express. And at the top, it said Rolling Thunder Pictures. And I had this was no the DVD idea. I had. Yeah, I had that no was idea the exact DVD what I this had. is. Yeah. So I grabbed this movie, and I'm like, I'm watching it. I don't care. Quentin Tarantino's a part of it. Of course, he's not really at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just brought it here, basically. But uh, I watched it because of that. And I'll be honest, man, the first half of it at that time in my life was kind of... It was like interesting to me because it was so beautiful, but I was just kind of like, okay, this is not Pulp Fiction. Like, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And then, but dude, by the end, I was just like so swept up by this movie, and uh, I hadn't, wa- I haven't watched it since around that time. I watched it multiple times around that time, uh, but yeah. because I like this, I watched In the Mood for Love because my friend Riley, who just visited me, shout out to Riley again. Uh, my buddy Riley was like, dude, you should watch In the Mood for Love. That dude rules, you know? And so, I, I mean, he's the reason, and Quentin Tarantino by proxy uh, are the reason that I got into Wong Kar Wai. And you mentioned the Criterion channel. If anybody has a Criterion channel, I talk about it like every week these days. They are doing the box set that they released called The World of Wong Kar Wai. They're doing it. They're streaming that whole box set. Mm-hmm. And that's how I watched Fallen Angels. I owned Chunking Express already, but... Fallen Angels, dude. I watched on there. If you haven't seen, if you want to watch either of these, you couldn't find them for some reason. Uh, check out, check out the uh, Criterion Channel. See what you can do there. But uh, yeah, dude. Th- this. Let's start with Christopher Doyle real quick because after I watched some Wong Kar Wai movies, I immediately just went looking for Christopher Doyle movies. Like I didn't care who directed yeah. it. I'm watching shit like Ondine and downloading Nancy. Like all these yeah. like re like random movies but it's yeah. like he did it don't you think that christopher doyle just has such a unique visual style like i feel like a lot of people do that kind of thing but he does it in such a specific way that i don't know if i actually could like if you pepsi challenged me and showed me two movies i hadn't seen said which one's christopher doyle's i don't actually know if i could do it but i feel like i could like he just has yeah, such I an mean, emotion i i think it's also that his style gels so well with the content of these two movies. Like, you know, he, yeah. he had shot some of Wong Kar Wai's earlier films, but a, a movie like Ashes of Time, for example, has a completely different visual style than these two films, Part partly by nature of the fact that we're doing a period piece, Wuxia versus something really contemporary and modern. But 
there is just something about his insistence to shoot wide and handheld that in these two movies specifically, I had never really seen before. Yeah. And it it really, you know, it's again, it sounds like a cliche, but it it did its job on just immersing me in both stories. Uh, the I, I just there there's some sort of contemporary '90s urban vibe that he captures. I, I we're on Chunking, so I don't want to uh, fa- uh, I don't want to f- uh, fast forward to Fallen Angels, but I think that McDonald's is in both movies, and at, oh. for some reason, there's <laughs> something about that McDonald's that that you know, as a kid born in 1990, these films again, even though I never lived in Hong Kong, they they so evoke that urban vibe to me. You know, I grew up in Chicago, a very different place than Hong Kong, but but there there's just something about going ultra wide and shooting, you know, uh, in the case of Fallen Angels, primarily at night. I think Chung King is maybe half and half, maybe a little bit more night, but um, there's something about that style. And and what, what's really weird and kind of elusive about him to me is how sort of like nonchalant he is in interviews. Like like he doesn't come across like other cinematographers in interview in interviews where you know you see interviews with uh Roger Deakins, Robert Richardson, these these like ultra beloved cinematographers. And and a lot of them, even though Richardson specifically has like a bit of an attitude and it's kind of funny, but they seem like very, very surgical people. And there's something about Doyle where he's there's something kind of punk rock about Doyle he's and just the way dude. he talks about these movies. He's just a dude and he's like, yeah, I lived in Hong Kong. And then when it was time to do the movies, we just picked up cameras and shot them. And I, I think that attitude absolutely translates to screen because even, even the artier shots in Chung King and Fallen Angels, they're still artier in the context of this thing that feels so present and so you feel like you're actually next to these people on the city streets even even despite camera tricks and all these impressionistic flares and stuff um you know the apartments just the way he shoots these cramped apartments in both films i feel like i'm in those spaces you know and that's sort of a very hard thing to capture too especially if it's a place you've never been before that's that feels so different from america like southeast asia you know sure yeah he he it's funny excuse me the uh, apartment that they shot in Whenever uh, Fei Wong's character, uh, Fei, actually, let's call her Fei, is in Cop 663's <laughs> apartment uh, in Chunking Express. And uh, that was actually his apartment, I believe. Uh, Christopher Doyle's Hong Kong apartment. Really? Yeah, they just shot it in there. I watched a, an interview with him. And he is like, dude, dude was just walking around talking to random people in his bar. Like, dude, doesn't care. You know, and he's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, we accidentally got this shot. People ask me all the time, you know, how'd you come up with this shot? We didn't know what we were doing. We just did X, Y, Z, you know, like uh, the shot looks so good, man. And he's like, yeah, there's a white building behind us. And it was reflecting light. That's how we got it. You know, <laughs> like, it's Do you just, remember what shot he was referring to? Uh, I actually don't, unfortunately, no. Yeah. Um, I'd have to. But it's it's it, you could watch it on the Criterion channel. It's it's on there, I believe. But yeah, one of the bonuses. That yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Uh, but man, he's he's so great. And you're spot on, man. There's something there's some sort of life that comes through in his, the way he shoots movies. I have found him to be most powerful with Wong Kar Wai because of, like you said, the content that he's capturing seems to fit perfectly. And those apartment yeah. sequences, man, whenever, when Faye is in, in Cop 6, 
six three or whatever in his apartment. Uh, those are probably my favorite moments. And it's funny because again, if you watch them, they feel almost like mundane and just funny. And California Dreamin's usually playing, and you know, like that song's also never sounded so good. It's so perfect it's in so this good. movie. Yeah. But um, but yeah, like you know, you have California Dreamin playing. She's like hanging out in this apartment. She's goofing off. She's doing these silly things, and. I just feel like I just love this movie so much in those moments. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it fills me with so much joy, like, watching her just be a geek, you know? Um, but also, like, you know, spinning that around, you know, it, it, there are moments that, though I don't think the films ever get too heavy, but everyone's sad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I don't yeah, feel no. like they get super, super heavy, but the content is actually a bummer. Uh, do you get that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's pretty obvious. If, if you look at these two films together, we're basically given four stories, right? And specifically, I, I think in a lot of ways, Fallen Angels gets darker in a lot of scenes, but Fallen Angels also has the silliest stuff, which is a weird kind of juxtaposition. For sure. Chung King is, is kind of doesn't have either extreme, but uh, both films all four characters kind of start in a place of extreme melancholy. And I, I, I think there's this sort of lack of tactile plot that the films have means that a lot of the story is kind of weaved together just through these uh, images, these moments and their voiceover. And by making, in the case of Chunking, by starting both characters in such a place of kind of heartbreak, melancholy, it's almost like it gives meaning to like everything we see after it, you know? Oh yeah. And, and just like the end of that movie, if you didn't get meaning at the beginning, I feel like at the end, it retroactively also adds meaning to it. And, and I'm glad you, you picked up on, uh, or that you mentioned the, how, how did you put it? The, I don't, I'll just use my own words, I guess. Uh, you kind of just live with these people. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, there's no hard, concrete plot that's really being thrown at you. It's more formed through you experiencing what these people are going through and kind of watching them go through it and make decisions and uh, and so on. Uh, and, dude, I, I've always been attracted to that kind of experiential storytelling yeah. where they're yeah. not really telling you a plot like maybe a Tarantino might or, you know, um, Nolan and Nolan. Yeah. Like where there's Spielberg, like, just pick your list, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like most film noir or neo-noir or, you know, it's just like, okay, cop must find killer. Okay. Movie is about this person trying to find the killer. Mm -hmm. Cop finds killer. It's, you it's know. not interested in this flow chart of X plus Y plus Z. It's, it's, it's a lot more nebulous in a way that I think makes it easier to track with how the characters are feeling, but it, it might not be, you know, it might not be everyone's cup of tea, I guess, but I, I find it interesting that um, these are things that uh, the, the use of music in both films is obviously like so, so palpable. And one of the things people love about it. So great. You look at, um, you look at the plot of the films in, in a lot of ways, both of these Chung King in particular, uh, they are musical as films in that when you're listening to an album of songs, you're, you know, outside of like, uh, 
rock operas and these like, you know, concept albums and stuff. When you listen to an album of songs, it's kind of like you're getting 10 or 12 things that are alike, but all different in certain ways. And I, I think likewise, the, uh, the two films are a lot like that, that you're, you're spending these kind of extended moments with characters and they all feel cohesive, but they're not exactly telling you this A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D type of story. And uh, the use of extended voiceovers in both also give them a kind of lyrical quality you know, uh, uh, characters pontificate. They make all these highly evocative, but highly kind of loose and sloppy metaphors. And it reminds me of song lyrics. It reminds me of the kind of abstract stories you can write in your head when you're listening to an album and you're getting a little bit of what one would call plot via the song's lyrics, but you're also kind of filling stuff in, in your mind. You're, you're letting the scenes play out in a way where you're more interested in, you know, the moment as opposed to the big picture. And I think you, um, you know, you reacting so much to these moments with Faye cleaning Tony Leung's apartment, I think speak to that, you know, in, in what other movie with a lot of plot where would that be the thing that you kind of gel with most, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you bring up something I actually wanted to ask you because you're a screenwriter, yeah. and one thing that you know, growing up in, you know, studying film at Ball State together and stuff, and we always had a lot of production folks around us, and one thing a lot of the writers hated was a voiceover. This is yeah. this is what they hate about. Uh, not the only thing. So if anybody's listening, I'm sure you'll come up. But one thing <laughs> I used to hear complaints about all the time was like voiceover in something like. Uh, a uh, Malik film, or um, I don't know, what's another voiceover that people hate? There are plenty of them, uh, I'm sure. But you just spoke highly of this. Can you mm-hmm. can you kind of articulate what makes this stand out as something that's really effective with voiceover as a yeah, screenwriter? So, so right off the bat, I'll give you a short answer that's like very boring and like no fun and not interesting, which is <laughs> obviously there's no hard, fast rules for anything, I think. And, sure, sure. And I think people looking for that need to not do art because to me, that's not what makes art good. Um, having said that, I think the reason why there's this negative connotation toward, towards voiceover, especially in screenwriting, is kind of twofold. I think number one... Uh, it's it becomes an easy choice for amateurs that are just starting out because the the sort of the not fun part of screenwriting the the non-imaginative part of screenwriting is sort of clerical in that a lot of times there's information you need the audience to know and understand about characters and about what's going on and uh the hard thing to do is to portray that visually the easy thing to do is to deliver it via exposition. So you'll notice there's some movies that there's no way we're going to get around not having to give you information. James Bond movies, you know, any movie where there's a mission, like we need to give you information somehow. But uh, typically the best way to do that is you, you try to deliver as much as you can visually. And because of that, I think uh, it's more difficult to do the thing that's better, like in most crafts. And I think uh, amateur screenwriters can rely on the voiceover as kind of this cheat to give the audience information, but still kind of have room to make it poetic or make it interesting. 
The problem is they typically fail, right? Because they're just starting out or they're not as talented as some of these other writers. Um, so understanding that in the context of there being no hard or fast rule, I think the reason why this works is um, A, the film uh, only depends on information as far as we understand what these characters feel. And B, there's so much of it, it becomes an integral part of the film. There's really no way you do this movie eliminating all VO and making every single thing a visual. It becomes a different movie then. And at that point, that's not, that's not what's, what's most interesting. What's most interesting is, okay, we're establishing this is a movie where characters are gonna pontificate to you a lot. And it's gonna make up the lion's share of how we're telling this story because the other stuff is so disjointed and abstract. It's like, okay, go with God, just do that really good. And then we're fine. Um, Scorsese also comes to mind as a filmmaker, his, you know, his crime movies of the, uh, you know, the early and mid nineties, uh, even Wolf, something like Wolf of Wall Street, that's very spiritually similar. The, the short answer is like, it works because it's good, right? It works because <laughs> you have Nicholas, you have, you have Nicholas Pelleggi and you have, um, what's his face, Terrence Winter writing it. And those guys are pros. So they're going to make it good and not bad. They're going to make it evocative and uh, um, rich in characterization and not dull and expositional. But beyond that, so much of the movie relies on it that it there's no way that it can be a cheat. Because it is what the movie is. Yeah, yeah. Sorry if that was like no, a no, no. super it's the same with super something like Taxi Driver or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can convey a lot of what Travis Bickle goes through, but hearing his inner monologue actually adds something to the film and because it is so consistent and so perpetual. Yeah. It's propelling the film forward, and quite and, frankly, and it's so beyond, necessary. It's necessary, and it's, it goes beyond exposition. Like we're also mm -hmm. getting the visual, but we're hearing from the horse's mouth what I'm feeling. And, and, well, I, and it, it becomes, it becomes meta at a certain point too, because, you know, there's that point at the end of taxi driver where like they leave De Niro stuttering while recording the voiceover in the movie, like as a means of like showing us how fractured Travis is getting like, you know, I'm not trying to be an elitist or anything, but the, the reason why screenwriters that are starting out are discouraged because like a 20 year old university student, probably isn't going to be able to weave something together that is that cohesive and is that kind of on point. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, dude, I, I agree with you 100% when it comes to Chunking Express and uh, really any of the Wong Kar Wai stuff. It's so fluid that I don't even have a note for it because it was just so a part of the movie. I didn't even think about it until you yeah. just brought it up. You know what I mean? Because it is obviously an integral part and it tells you, I don't know. I feel like you that that is the thing that connects you with these characters. And I think that's like yeah. w without that like you said, not only would it be a different film, but I really think a lot of that heart or a lot of those things that really pulled me in and by the end of the film, even if I didn't feel this way at the beginning, by the end, the way I felt is in large part because of yeah. that. And dude, I'm I'm 100% with you. I I think there's also an issue of poor VO typically involves redundancy and i i think one of the reasons why the vo in that one cut of blade runner is so reviled is because Ugh. in in so many of these sequences ford is basically narrating stuff that we already see happening 
and that and that we can deduce is happening. You know, um, I want you to imagine the uh, the pineapple sequences of Chungking Express without voiceover. We would have no idea why it was so important for him to get pineapple cans with a certain expiration date, right? So when you combine those two things, you have a thing that's greater than the sum of its parts, right? Sure, it, sure. We're getting a little bit more, uh, we're getting a little bit more uh, characterization than if we were just to see him do the pineapple thing. And seeing him do it obviously gives us something a lot richer than if we were to like write a poem or a short story or read a poem or a short story that just had that written out. Hey, I did this with pineapple cans <laughs> to sort of count down the days till I was giving up on my relationship, you know? Yeah. 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 So I, I, I think that's also another thing that like works very well in the film is that the VO is an integral part of it and there's no redundancy. Yeah. And, and to give the listeners who haven't heard this uh, some background, will you explain the pineapples thing to them? Yeah. So I, I guess the easiest way to explain it would be, um, Takashi Kinoshiro is is sort of uh, buying up all the expired cans of pineapples he could find in like the Circle K's and the 7-Elevens around, around Hong Kong. And he's basically doing this to give him a deadline. He's he's picking, he's buying all the pineapple cans that have, uh, I believe it's May 1st. May 1st, yeah. May 1st, 1994 expiration date. And his thing is uh, 30 days away, 30 cans. Once it's May 1st, I'm going to eat all these cans and I'm going to move on from my relationship. Yeah. It's correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, no. And it's, yeah. it's great. Um, I vaguely yeah. remember being his birthday too. Like that's his birthday, but I could be wrong there. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It's not the point of the movie. The point is he gets all these cans and it's great uh, because he does eat them. I mean, this is like at the oh, very yeah. beginning of his, <laughs> of his story. And he just starts tearing through like 30 cans of these. Yeah. I mean, you don't watch and him you can eat see, every one. Okay. Ken, Kenishiro eats a bunch in one take though. Oh you yeah. Can see, he eats at least three or four of them, like in one take. And he doesn't just eat them. He's like sipping the juice. Like he's yeah. getting all <laughs> yeah. of it. And he's like, mm, mm. Mm. like he's like ravenously eating these pineapples. Um, but yeah, it's, that's so great, man. I, did you have a story between the two? You know, uh, I'll, I'll just say uh, Tony Leung's Cop Six Six Three, and then Kinoshiro's Cop Two Two Three. Did you did you prefer a story? Did either one of them hit? Because I'll just say this: uh, Tony Leung's story, obviously, I think I've already expressed, it hits me a lot. Yeah, it connects with me. Basically, once his starts, and by the time it ends, that's when the movie as a whole, like even from the beginning, yeah. really kind of holds that spot in my heart has nothing to do with Kinoshiro being good or bad. He's awesome. I love that dude, especially mm -hmm. all those pineapple things. And I mean, he's just such an endearing character. Uh, but did you have a preference between those stories? Cause they do feel to me like two very different stories that yeah. really are only tied together through the themes of that one girl yeah. I was dealing with, like that loneliness and solitude and things. I don't really understand. And again, I just rewatched this for the first time. Like, a day or so ago. So maybe I just haven't thought through this enough, but it, they really, with the exception of you seeing some of the characters that pass others by, there's really no tie to them other than kind of a spiritual thematic uh, kind of yeah, tie. But yeah. do you have a I, preference? Yeah, I, I think I do prefer the Tony Leung, uh, Fei Wong story. And I, I think that's kind of like the heart and soul of the movie. 
I, I would have to go back. I, I wasn't timekeeping as I was rewatching the film, but it does even feel like the one with Bridget Lynn and Kenishiro. It feels like that's shorter too. It feels like that's like a third of the film. And then Tony Leung and Fei Wong is two thirds of the film. I, I could be way off. No, and if I am, I think that just speaks to how it like hits, how sure. it lands with me. Yeah, it, it, but, go, it um, almost goes half the film. It's not quite. You're right. It is yeah. definitely shorter. Uh, but it goes a lot longer than I expected, which is kind of crazy. In in a weird way, it kind of reminds me of um, Darjeeling Limited, which I, I think is like Wes Anderson's most underrated film personally. And how if you watch it with Hotel Chevalier, uh, the short he did yeah. um, with uh, Jason Schwartzman in France, that that is like a very good kind of appetizer for what um, Darjeeling Limited winds up being. It. In, in a lot of ways, the Bridget Lynn Kenishiro story in uh, Chunking Express feels like that if it was just like three times as long. If like <laughs> the appetizer was like two courses of appetizers and then the main course. Yeah, yeah. That's how it feels for me. It's sort of, it primes your palate for the sensibilities of the film, the sensibilities of this world, this version of Hong Kong that we're seeing. And then when the Tony Lung, Fei Wong stuff starts, we're kind of ready for it. And I feel like with that first story, Wong Kar Wai can like get more abstract and we're like kind of already on board, you know? Yeah. That's interesting, man. Yeah. Cause yeah. I always, that's, that's been my one criticism of Chunking Express, even since the first time I saw it was always the Bridget Lynn Kinoshiro storyline always seemed like it had legs to run on or run with or whatever, running on legs. Uh, but it had the, it had legs to run with. Uh, but it just seems to cut off. And the last line that Kinoshiro says, if I remember correctly, is, and then I realized I was in love with her or something like that, you know? And then it just yeah. cuts to, f- like, like Leung and And we never Wong. see Kinoshiro, like, try to pick her up. Never. Like, during Leung's story. It's, it's, it's almost like, do you know what it feels very much like? Uh, I'm basically saying the same analogy I just did with another fine. turn of phrase. But, like, if you read a collection of short stories... And there's kind of, or even Sin City with like uh, Josh Hartnett at the beginning and then like coming up at the end. In a weird way, uh, Kenoshiro and Bridget Lynn is is like the sort of framing device of the whole movie. It just like doesn't really come back at the end. We kind of just do a full on pivot, you know? Yeah. I feel like the Bridget Lynn stuff has like, her story has like crime elements that are really interesting. It's just, they're never really explored and we'll get to this in a bit, but I think that might be one of the reasons why I prefer Fallen Angels a little bit, because the crime story in that seems like really explored. And I feel in, like uh, com- com- in comparison, I feel like if they were one film like one car, why wanted them to be, I feel like you would be able to tie like like a bookend the Bridget Lynn story very easily into Fallen Angels, yeah. which we'll get to shortly because some of the crime in that... I am glad that, they're two separate films, though. I'm going to say that now. I'm going to go against the director well, and say I'm glad they're separate. With what we got on screen, you know, because if you shot them at the same time, they'd probably look a lot more similar and they couldn't look more different to me, and we'll get there. Yeah. But uh, I think, like, you could easily tie the Bridget Lynn story, the, the woman in the blonde wig, that crime, because you also get a lot of similar people and a lot of similar crime folks in Fallen Angels. And, and locations, those, those and like locations. Uh, gambling halls and stuff. Yeah. And so I feel like you could have tied that together better. You know what I mean? And so yeah. since he did separate them, 
Yeah, it just that that's the only real criticism I have of the film because it's so unbelievably gorgeous and the soundtrack hits so perfectly. Like I'll never be able to think of dreams, even though that's not even the song that plays the most. Uh, my buddy Riley and I were counting them as like how many times California yeah. Dreamin' played because it's like so many times. Even even that Dennis Brown song, the reggae song in yeah. the bar. Plays like six times. Yeah, yeah, like. it's true. We were counting all of them. Yeah, but the, the like like uh, dreams though by it's by it's Fei Wong's version of the cranberry song, but man, it like I will never be able to. You know how there are some songs like uh, just stuck in the middle with you with, will always be yeah. someone getting their ear cut off. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. like yeah, there's yeah. like that's Reservoir Dogs. Um, who, what's the um. Uh, the kind of surfer music in, in Pulp Fiction. Is it Dick Miserloo. Dale or whatever? Miserloo? Dick Dale Miserloo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that will always be Pulp Fiction. If you try to use that, you're a loser and you need to go away. <laughs> there's, already a, there's already a flag planted in that territory. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, they're yeah. like some of these songs have flags planted mm-hmm. where it's like, don't touch. These are the property yeah. of something else. And this film successfully does that. There are so many great things in Chunking Express. And like I said, the only thing is that you do get 45 minutes of the film or, or 40, so somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe I'm overshooting. But the point is you get a significant chunk of the film focused on this Kinoshiro and Bridget Lynn story. And it is very compelling. Like, I love watching, at the very beginning, Bridget Lynn is this, uh, she's known as the woman in the blonde wig. And she's basically a a uh, a, a mule manager, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she gets all yeah. these Indian uh, workers to work with her and smuggle drugs out of China. And so, uh, you know, she you see them, her giving them money. You see her buying them special suits that they can put the drugs in. And you can see them literally putting the drugs really in their cool bodies. It's a really cool sequence, too. It's, it's so great. It's almost like this this hyperspeed Bressonian sequence of yeah. just, like, like process. And Wong Kar Wai can be really funny. Like, there are moments really, because there's this short Indian dude that the woman in the blonde wig just harasses all the time because yeah. he kind of fucks off you know and yeah, she yeah, just yeah. like completely berates him all the time and i'm just like kind of chuckling at this and then you know it cuts back to kinashiro and he's doing all of his lonely sad boy stuff which i also love you know but yeah that pivot kind of i don't know that's the only thing that i wish was different but you make a really great point that i think next time i watch it i will probably adopt and kind of like bring that into mm. my put that into my lens as i watch it so to speak which is, um, it really is setting up the tone and the ideas and all of the things that we're about to get with the real heart of the film. Yeah. We're going to kind of set you up as an appetizer with this thing. For sure. And if you watch it coupled with Fallen Angels and you do think of them as the same film, I do think there's a bit more of a bookend, kind Mm -hmm. of. They don't get to explore it as much as I wish they could. Um, but it is interesting. And what I want to do real quick, Jake, is I want us to go ahead and switch over to Fallen Angels because we can always mm-hmm. call back to Chunky yes. Express, and I'm sure we will. Um, but we're going to take a quick break, and we will come back and talk about Fallen Angels and kind of both films together. So uh, we'll be right back. All right, everybody, Fallen Angels is the next film from 1995, written and directed by Wong Kar Wai, released September 6, 1995 in Hong Kong, but we in the U.S. did not see it, uh, in at least on our shores, until January 30th, 1998. Holy shit, that's over two years. Um, but, uh, you know, 
in this Hong Kong set crime flick, kind of, we'll talk about that, but in this Hong Kong set uh, crime flick, a disillusioned hitman attempts to escape from his violent lifestyle against the wishes of his partner in crime who is infatuated with him, and an eccentric mute repeatedly encounters and then subsequently falls in love with a depressed woman looking for the prostitute who supposedly stole her ex-boyfriend. Uh, also shot by the great cinematographer Christopher Doyle, as we talked before. And this film looks way different. I can't wait to talk about that. Um, it's way more dreamlike, mostly shot in wide angles with a lot of close-ups, which distort the frames. Yeah. And um, it's undoubtedly conveying you know, the subtext beneath these characters and their dealings with loneliness and solitude here yet again. And this film is super colorful, okay? I mean, Chunking Express is a lot grittier, um, and, you know, it still has these sparks of color, but it's pretty straightforward. This film is like, this is like Park Chan-Wook color or something, dude. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, there's bright reds and bright greens and a lot of, it's all so night. So much neon. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's, so it's, much it's neon. all night. So all these colors, these neon colors just pop really really beautiful but uh this film is certainly uh far more stylized than its predecessor uh but i will say this i felt like this film lacked something that made chunking express so good and i'm curious to see what you think of this jake because i feel like it kind of lacked an emotional core beneath the experiential style that they do and though fallen angels is still very experiential and it you know, it has all these colors and all this style. It was still missing something for me. And I still like the film quite a bit because it is certainly beautiful. Uh, the style is awesome. And uh, it's actually really funny. You were talking about like a lot of the goofy, like this has a bit more of that. Uh, it's a spectrum of its different mm -hmm. emotions. Certainly, it certainly hits a bit more of an extreme. And it's a pretty funny film. Um, but there was just something missing for me. Maybe by the end of this, we'll identify that. But Jake, I want to know, you know, I know that you love this film, but do you feel like something was missing as well? Are you? Are, are, did you kind of feel the same way with me? I know you've seen it before, or did yeah. you just did this just hit home right away? And you were like, "This is the Wong Kar Wai movie." Yeah, so I think the latter. Um, I'll go into it in a little bit more detail, but uh, I think I I disagree with you in 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 terms of emotional core, just because this film is kind of like the Mortal Kombat 2 of <laughs> this sort of like mid nineties, like Wong Kar Wai thing in that yeah. it's more of everything. It's more stylized, it's grittier, it's also funnier and more extreme kind of in every direction. And there's something about, um, there's something about the, the, if we take Chungking Express, for example, there's something about where the characters start there and where they wind up that I think is emotionally just a slight sort of slight difference. It's, it's a, it's Chunking Express is a movie where the characters arc, but it's subtle. And I look at fallen angels and I think that extremity in every direction leads to like transformation of its main characters. And I think because of that, I, I, there's something about it that even though I loved Chunking when I first saw it, um, I watched Fallen Angels just because I liked Chunking Express so much. And when you, you know, it doesn't take a lot of digging in the paper trail to be like, oh, there's like another one of these that he did the year <laughs> after, you know? I'm sure that, I don't even remember exactly, but I'm sure that's how I saw it, was just liking Chunking and, you know, kind of wanting, 
kind of wanting more of that tone, that whatever that energy is. And I, I got to say, Fallen Angels really kind of struck a nerve with me from the get-go that Chung King didn't. Chung King is sort of like a beautiful song that I liked listening to, whereas Fallen Angels is a beautiful song that I felt was written for me. And Fallen Angels is one of my favorite movies, and it has been probably since... I don't want to say the first time I saw it because sometimes, you know, it takes you a little bit, but sure. probably since the second or third time I saw it. And it it kind of bothered me for the longest time that, you know, I hesitate to use the phrase like film Twitter, or like film internet, you know, blogs or whatever. <laughs> yeah. who, who needs that? Who needs that click, you know, that clickification of everything. But I do think that the film is kind of like ignored in favor of Chung King. And I think I think it's recently I've noticed that started to change. And I, I think a big part of that is very pragmatic. It's just Fallen Angels is easier to see now than it was like in the late 2000s when I saw it for the first time. Uh, it also helps that like both the films are very like, this sounds weird, but I think you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Both of the films, because of the uh, voiceover that has subtitles when you watch it, like, you know, an English copy of it, both the films are like, really prime candidates for like people that screenshot things and then like post them on Instagram or like Tumblr. It'll be like a voiceover like sentence, like out of context with yeah. a beautiful image. Obviously, like we said, almost every frame of these two movies is like awesome. dude. So I, in a weird way, I feel like the Tumblr Instagram crowd is like kind of rediscovering this movie. Um, I'm, I'm a, a photographer just as a hobby in my free time. And uh, so I'll do these shoots with people. And I've had like people that I've shot with like post about it, like as they're discovering it, specifically Fallen Angels. And that makes me happy. And that makes me feel like um, it's not getting as buried as it kind of was when like stuff was so hard to seek out sometimes that people would just kind of default to praising Chunking Express. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is a point in Fallen Angels, and we'll kind of dig into this more broadly, but I'm going to pick a specific point. And quite frankly, I I don't know if I know the names. Let me look here. Yeah, it's the same character. It's Kinoshiro's character who is in yeah. this film as well as the same guy. But it's a separate character, though, because in this one, he's uh, he's he's like he's a mute guy. Well, and he chooses King, to be. He's, so right. he ch he chooses that he says I'm never going to talk again at one point or whatever right, um, and I it's the same named character. I assume this was just the same guy, and that he just like fucking left. He's like I'm not going to be a cop anymore. <laughs> I'm going to be a weird dude because he is weird. Yeah. If it's not the same, he's named the same thing, which right. is such a random name. I can't imagine. Quite frankly, I don't know what he's thinking because there are no bonus features explaining the difference between <laughs> I these guess two it's characters. The point is, though, it doesn't matter. He he is uh, he's filming everything, mm -hmm. and he films his dad cooking at one point. And later, he's just sitting there, I think, smoking a cigarette, watching this footage, you know. And that is an emotional warmth that I get watching it. And it doesn't even necessarily mean a good emotion. Like, mm -hmm. it makes me feel a lot of things, those moments that you see like that. But for me, as I was watching it, the extreme of all of those things, because you get an extreme almost in everything. 
there's violence in this, which is pretty oh, much yeah. non-existent. I mean, there's a little bit in Chunking. There's a the little, beginning, but it's but it's, it's not really even that visually. Yeah, it's not even that visually. Vi- I mean, people get Graphic, shot. Like yeah. that's about it. And this, like, people are getting shot, and there's like blood everywhere. Oh, it's yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know, you have like this movie, and then like John Woo's way yeah. up here, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, it's like violent. It is funnier. I mean, I would definitely say it's funnier than Chunking Express for mm-hmm. sure. Like you said, um, the visual style, which I want to touch on. Uh, to kind of further make a point, everything is in wide angle, pretty much, which he did in Chung King, but it's way more subtle. This mm-hmm. is like close-ups in wide angle, so everything's distorted, and uh, all the colors are just like bright and popping, and you'll get these like random moments of, uh, like there's a point where uh, one of the characters, this is the the woman, the depressed woman looking for the prostitute who supposedly stole her ex-boyfriend, the depressed woman is sitting there with Kaneshiro's character, uh, and they're sitting in this uh, place, and all these people just start fighting around them. And there's, like, two different scenes of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where people are just, like, I get the sense that in Hong Kong, people just fight just in restaurants. Just this melee breaks yeah, out. Yeah, like, this huge melee. Uh, and they're just sitting amidst it, you know. And it's, like, in this in that choppy, slow motion that Wong Kar Wai does, where it's, like, mm-hmm. it's almost like he slows it down, like, a half, not even a full you know, um, uh, it's just like this little like half time. Yeah, but if, then it's like you're also you're about, cutting you're cutting frames out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I can actually tell you how that's done. It's it's called like it's, when I learned about it, it was called lagging shutter or sticky shutter. I I don't know if like it has like a bigger name than that. But basically, when you shoot a movie, uh, each frame the the you know the camera fires the shutter at the same rate. Yeah. And usually you want to do that in a way to get a crisp image. If you watch some of those sequences at the beginning of like, I don't know, let's say Saving Private Ryan, you'll notice everything is kind of the opposite. It's like it's like hyper sharp. It's hyper, yeah. you know, the movement feels like almost too crazy and and um, staccato. But basically what you do is you you leave the shutter open for longer. So each frame of the moving image, you get motion blur. Yeah. And then you you um, you shoot a whole sequence like that, double the frames, and then, like you said, you take a bunch out. Yeah. So what we're left with is this thing that is normal speed, but because of the motion blur, it has this sort of dreamy, slow quality to it. Yeah, and you know, at, there's a point where Kinoshiro is walking like that, um, mm-hmm. and the same with the woman in the blonde wig and Chunking, and they're yeah. walking. And I thought, like, man, this looks like it's just barely slowed down. Because at first, my buddy Riley was like, slow motion. I'm like, this doesn't look like slow motion. It just looks like they're, like, fucking with the visuals. I'm glad Mm -hmm. to know that now. Because I was like, man, it does look like they slowed it down. Not a full, like, half time, but just, like, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But that makes a lot of sense. Uh, But it does lag. I actually did a a music video, like, uh, December 2019. And uh, there was one kind of tricky sequence of uh, someone doing martial arts that we couldn't kind of figure out a way to shoot to make it look different than everything else. And shout out to cinematographer Thais Castrali, who was helping out as a camera assistant on that uh, music video. She knew what a big Wong Kar Wai fan I was. And she actually suggested doing that lagging shutter thing while we were on set. And it's like one of my favorite sequences in the music video. So Yeah, yeah. it's an awesome thing. And I I immediately attribute it to Wong Kar Wai because he uses it all the time. Yeah. 
And I don't even it, necessarily it's definitely his. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I definitely, Doyle, you know, <laughs> I don't even think it always has something to say. It just looks cool sometimes. Sometimes I think it has yeah. an effect, but man, it's it's just something else. But anyways, I don't even remember what I'm saying now. The po- <laughs> but the point is, uh, why did I even You're bring that about up? The extremity, the extremity of fallen angels, and yeah. how so you even that, the visual style. You get yeah. that lagging. Uh, what is that called mm-hmm. again? What you call L- lagging shutter is just lagging shutter. How, how get, I heard it referred to. You get that lagging shutter style, and all these people are fighting behind these two protagonists, right? And like that's like that's super, like I just crack up, you know. And they mm-hmm. they they just sit on it for a long time. I mean, you can watch these people yeah. fight for forever. And then you know there are other scenes where uh, you know the depressed woman basically fights a blow up doll. Which is pretty great. I love that. Yeah, it's um, great. And then she that's... gets mad at Kinoshiro when he puts the cigarette out on her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like you're sick. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super it's I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff. And and on that level, um, I do like it. And I again I like this film. But dude, I just don't know what it is where I don't feel because I, I agree with your transformation statement. I do feel like people change, mm-hmm. but I don't connect with that do you get what i'm saying like it's more of um the experiential aspect of it because everything does feel like so one of my notes i put you know uh i was i I put like the camera work is not invisible it's very intentionally noticeable you know what i mean yeah the opposite of invisible yeah yeah like it feels i'm not calling the film pretentious by any means but like any other filmmaker, you'd see critics saying like, that's such a pretentious shot. You know, it's like The Revenant whenever you see Leonardo DiCaprio's breath on the lens. Yeah. And people like freak out because it's like this, like, oh, they're making notice yeah. of the camera or whatever, you know? Which is unfortunate because I really enjoy that movie. Even I fucking I love that a lot movie, of criticism. Dude. Yeah. Anyways, um, we'll talk about that sometime. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I love that movie. But the point is, uh, like... Yeah, it's like everything in this, including the comedy, including the camera work, including like a lot of the things we've talked about. Um, and, you know, we don't uh, are there any I don't remember any real soundtrack that stands out the same way, with the exception of that one jukebox song that is played. Oh, the Laurie Anderson. song. Yeah. yeah. Daddy, daddy. It was just like you said. Yeah, that one. It's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's also funny to imagine that some like. Laurie Anderson was like like an avant-garde musician. So I just I just like Wong Kar Wai's version of Hong Kong, where like you can just play like avant-garde Laurie Anderson tracks like through the jukebox. <laughs> like I don't know where this bar exists, but I would love to go there. When I was um, when I was younger, he, a quick caveat here. When I was younger, yeah. I always wanted to buy a jukebox just so I could put cool shit in it. Like that would mm-hmm. never be in a jukebox. Of course. And then yeah. people could just like like that exact thing. Like you walk up yeah, and it's yeah. like, oh, you wanted like third eye blind? Fuck you. It's not here. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you know, go play like X, whatever, like go play the Suspiria Goblin soundtrack. Yeah, what? yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would mean? play but, that for sure. Um, yeah, the only other needle drop that I could think of that is like, does the Chung King repeated thing is Shirley Kwan's Forget Him, which winds up factoring into the plot when the hitman uh, asks his partner to like yeah. play this song to like know how I feel. That's basically That's his great. way of like, yeah. Man, the more we talk about it, it's just like one of those things where it's like I don't know why. Maybe yeah, it's I maybe think... it was the musical choices. Maybe the actual like California Dreaming and Dreams yeah. just hit me in a way. But it's like everything about Fallen Angels 
though I think it's great. And it does kind of piss me off that people didn't talk about it. But I also agree mm -hmm. that when I was watching these, the only two available to me were Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love. I didn't have yeah. any until like 2046 came out and then my Blueberry until Nights recently, and yeah. Grandmaster. Like, you know, those were available. But, you mm -hmm. know, I'm so glad Criterion put them out because I still have I've seen Ashes of Time as well. But uh, I haven't seen you know, his first film. I haven't seen Days of Being Wild or Happy Together. I haven't seen any of those because they just weren't available when I was watching yeah. that stuff. So I think you have something there as well, that Fallen Angels is probably one of those films that could benefit, uh, you know, from being seen more and actually be yeah. a, a larger part of the topic. But I also want to add something that we can go into, which is the plot. Uh, I use air quotes for that. But, you know, like as we move through it, and this definitely is a more plotty than... Chunking Express. I mean, there is a mm -hmm. deliberate like crime aspect to it, and it is yeah. exclusively tied kind of to one uh, like half of the story or whatever. But man, I really liked the Kinashiro stuff, where he's this yeah. mute guy. And if I remember correctly, please listeners, if I'm wrong, hit me up on social media. I was under the impression that yeah, berate he, Austin if he's wrong. Uh, yeah, absolutely, because I, I intentionally. <laughs> Thought uh, I thought he did that intentionally, like that, like he's a mute on purpose, like he chose yeah. to stop talking. And I think that's so funny because he, speaking of berating, he berates everyone to do <laughs> everything. Like he, he just like randomly <laughs> starts like putting shampoo in this guy's hair and just it's harassing great. him, and then he expects to be paid for all of these things. You know what I mean? Yeah. By the by the way, I want to shout out. Uh, I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation. I apologize, but Fai Hung Chan plays as he's credited on IMDb as the man forced to eat ice cream and the like four or five scenes he shares with Kaneshiro are like so good. He's so great in them. It's so great. That, that yeah. ice cream thing, you know, like th so those scenes are like so good. And then even whenever he meets the depressed woman, like he's like following her around like this little like lap dog or whatever, you know what I mean? And man, it's just, I really like that story, and I would connect with yeah. that. And then we get to like, then we cut to the the hitman. I fucking love this story. I love this idea yeah. of this hitman going into these like these uh, uh, gambling houses or whatever. And there are these like I don't know who they are, yakuzas or something. I don't know who he's going after, but basically like walks in, just shoots the place up, and leaves like a boss. And then his yeah. partner is the one that like helps him and sets up all these gigs and mm -hmm. you know spots people and tells them where things are and so on. And uh, I, I love that because there's also the sadness where he's gone and she's like, you know, just on the bed, just like masturbating sadly, well, thinking about him. I mean, that's the thing, man. That's <laughs> I, I think in a weird way, that's one of the reasons why I relate to the characters more. Because like, look, I'm not saying like. It, it's not that crime held, helps me relate to them. I mean, like, you know me, dude. I'm like, I'm the whitest person on earth. I'm yeah. like, I'm whiter than Mark Zuckerberg drinking a glass of warm milk. So <laughs> it's not like street life is my in. Yeah, no, it's but the masturbation like, being sad. That's that's your... Well, well, no. I mean, I don't want to say, yeah, it's that. But it's like, to me, these characters default to a level of such pronounced social alienation compared to Chungking Express. I mean, think about it. Through the vast majority of the movie, they're not even communicating. Like, I mean, they're communicating, but they're not even interfacing, yeah. like face-to-face. -face. Whereas at least in Chungking, you have Leung and Fei like at Midnight Express, like yeah. at the counter. But there is something about the hitman and his partner where it's like, 
again, I, I don't think the movie's about anything more than like what happens and how it's supposed to make you feel. Sure, I don't sure. think there's any weird interpretation, but I do think it speaks to a level of like pronounced urban isolation and pronounced alienation from the things that you want. I mean, even the hitman is like arrested. Think about what he says in the beginning. He, he, I mean that metaphorically arrested. He's like, uh, I want people to decide everything for me. Right. Yeah. That's like depression, man. That's yeah. like you, you are so unable to seek out the things that you want that you would rather be living on this track in life. And I think he's deluding himself. And unfortunately his end is more sort of tragic, but I, I think what's cool about his partner is from like 15 minutes into the movie, there's already a contradiction because she's talking about what it's like kind of being in this guy's shadow and cleaning up after him and like wondering if he's going out and stuff. And she's like, well, me, I know how to take care of myself. I know how to make myself happy. But is there anything happy about seeing her masturbate to that Lori Anderson song? It's no, I mean, to me, it like, it defines loneliness to me. Yeah. And she's clearly not satisfied with that life, you know? Yeah. It's which, sad. which again, what winds up making the ending, I think, so satisfying. And that, dude, I don't. Again, I don't know what happened, but I see that shot of Kenishiro and the girl that plays the hitman's partner on the motorbike it's to so the Flying great. Picket song. I think I see that on Instagram like once, once every week or two now. It's crazy, dude. That is, I mean. To cinephiles around the world, I'm sure that is one of that and something from In the Mood for Love are probably like the two iconic images. Because yeah. I'll tell you this, man, Fallen Angels is definitely set up to be more friendly to the uh, you know, let's print like print screen so we can capture this image, <laughs> you know, like getting still shots or whatever. Fallen like Angels. Every I was, scene has one shot that you can like throw up on Instagram or like like make an art print of, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, what you're saying is totally true, man. Like, you know, you have this, there is uh, not just the pr pronounced isolation, but there is a sadness to all these characters that is very, very much in the forefront. And I guess the thing that I like about Chung King more, so I'm going to be your enemy here. Please. <laughs> but the the thing that I like about Chunking more, I think, is that subtlety. Because everything is so extreme that I think I just gravitate toward this because it is... I would go... I'm curious to hear your response to what I'm about to say because I'm going to say it, but I feel like I need to think about this more. But I feel like Chunking is a more introspective film, whereas this delivers those things to you, like the sadness of masturbating by yourself, yeah. crying basically to, to, to that song, you know? Um, like, I feel like I get it all there, but I, there's like this freedom of interpretation with Chung King that I didn't get here. Maybe that's, maybe that's the long car. Why I love, maybe that's why I love something like in the mood for love, which is almost takes all the visual style of fallen angels, like that beautiful, yeah. bright color, awesome sets, awesome, uh, wardrobe, uh, with the heart that I perceive in Chung King, and you get this kind of like awesome picture. I can't wait yeah. to rewatch that because part of me wonders, like, is that the Wong Kar Wai I gravitate toward? And it could be. And if it is, that would make sense because um, I think In the Mood for Love is a great film. I enjoyed watching it. I've only seen it once. My recollection, though, was coming off of Chung King and Fallen Angels, I found it kind of dull. Yeah. And I, I think a reason might be 
again, everything being sort of this, this sort of histrionic, everything dialed up to 11 of fallen angels. Like if that's going to resonate me or if that's going to resonate with me, the thing that is not that I'm probably not going to like as much. Yeah. Yeah. Again, for anyone listening that hasn't seen it in the mood for love is great. It's, it's just, it probably hit me on a personal level, the least of all the films I've seen by him, which to me is surprising just because especially coming from like this sort of like bougie, fart sniffing like film school crowd like that's the one that that's the one that everyone loves <laughs> yeah. best is in the mood for love you know? yeah the critics all, like everyone that's kind of yeah. the movie. if you say Wong Kar Wai they say in the mood for love regardless of whether right. it's their favorite it's just kind of a it's the it's the one you know with, with I, fa- I think it's also very interesting though sorry to uh, cut you off um the uh, some of the stuff that's come up I'm I'm noticing this pattern of like you bringing up the voiceover and and how voiceover is such a huge part of these two movies. Um, us talking about how the movies are kind of, they're not anti-plot, but it's like mini plot. It's like the plot is so loose. It's way more about the moments of these characters. And Doyle's cinematography, um, especially in Fallen Angels compared to Chung Kang, he is so, so wide for close-ups. All of these things are like, things you're not supposed to do. I'm using scare quotes yeah. for your listeners. In fact, I'm using the dreaded triple square, <laughs> the, the dreaded triple scare quotes right now. <laughs> um, there are things you're not supposed to do, but I think one of the reasons why the, the films resonate me so resonate with me so much is they find creative ways to show you, no, you can do this. You just need to be smart and clever about it. I mean, especially the wide angle thing, man. They're always like, we don't want to distort faces with uh, wide angle lenses for your close-ups. It's like, well, what if the story dictates that you need to show these people fractured and like mutilated to reflect how they feel on the inside emotionally? Yeah. You know, I think it totally works. Dude, it totally works. The look it of works this in film... a way. Go ahead. Sorry. If they were to do the opposite, it, it would, it wouldn't be as good. It wouldn't be as kind of emotionally, it wouldn't lock you in as much, I think. And it's know? so consistent. I mean, that's the key. Mm-hmm. Going back to the voiceover or any of the things that we've talked about, the consistency makes it like where the film doesn't survive without it. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. If you had two mm-hmm. or three, maybe five scenes where there's the wide angle with the close-ups and stuff, it would not have the same effect as they look like they are in another world. Yeah. Do you get what I mean? They're in their own I get exactly what place. You mean. Their faces are typically the only ones distorted. Um, I'm not saying that definitively there might be others, but in my mind, the only scenes I think of them distorted are the protagonists who are going through these things that you're talking about. And Mm -hmm. um, I have nothing to say uh, negative about the visuals. I I do love those Chunking Express visuals because of the subtlety, but man, in the context of this, I can't think of any criticisms about it. I mean, production-wise, they knocked this out of the park. The lighting, being in interiors... And everything feels like it's super long because they have mm-hmm. these super wide angles and they're close and they're yeah. close up or or kind of a partial close up on somebody. Um, and it's just like it just looks like these rooms go forever behind them because everything just which is the same reason why Wells loved wide angle lenses so much in his film. Yeah. You know, they always talk about like like deep fo- like deep field, deep focus, and like Citizen Kane and stuff. And it's because when you're wide. It, it creates this weird like barreling effect where whatever you point it at just becomes this like 
you know, space shuttle tunnel, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it really works here because it also makes these characters feel so isolated. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you can see Especially so much in the room. Clan, there's, Go ahead. Yeah, there's, they do that framing like way more than once or twice where sort of on the left or right side of the frame, we'll get a character's face super close up and distorted. And then they leave the other side of the frame kind of bare. Yeah. So all you see is that space of the room that they're in. You know? Yeah. And I mean, this is visual storytelling 101. Like if I, if mm -hmm. I were teaching a class about visual storytelling, Wong Kar Wai would be there because I it's, mean, it's great. Yeah. Who's better. I'm not saying he's the best, but it's like, dude, he's, he does it so well. Like, why wouldn't you use this as like an exemplar, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and even the, the shot of them on the motorbike uh, that you brought up, that's a wide angle shot. Those tunnels that yeah. they're driving through look mm -hmm. like, uh, what's the, I already, Stargate or something like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you're going through yeah, some yeah. like dimensional tunnel or something. I mean, they look so long and windy and it looks fucking wild, dude. Like, where yeah. is this place on earth? It just looks weird. And then when they're even almost distorted because somehow they get these like close ups while they're driving. Yeah, the version of the DVD I have is that as the cover. And you could see like there's barrel distortion on Kaneshiro's face, but like it doesn't matter because it's about what that moment makes you feel and i encourage all listeners to go google fallen angels uh and it should it usually say like a film by Wong Kar Wai, fallen angels and you'll see a guy smoking a cigarette and a woman uh laying her head you know very softly on his back and they're in like a tunnel and you can see cars behind him you'll find it because it's probably going to be the first 10 images that pop up yeah. dude this image is so great because i also look at their faces in that shot and even though they're together they look so alone do you get what yeah. i'm saying and uh you know everybody listening They're all alone together yeah exactly yeah and <laughs> and you know everyone who listens to the show enough knows that uh, i'm a huge fan of bummerville and these these films you know at their core i don't think the experience is as much of a bummer though when you start thinking about these movies you know you can certainly find that information but uh yeah, I don't know. I I really like Fallen Angels, man. I like the visuals. Um, oh, that's what I was gonna say. The last thing I have to say in terms of my notes, at least, is uh, all the Hitman stuff. I could just watch that movie. I'm not saying yeah, I don't great. like the other, but it's like, man, I wanna I wanna see this dynamic. This super sad woman who wants yeah. this guy but can't say it, and he's trying to get away from her, kind of not not intentionally at first, but later, yes, and. She sets up these jobs. He pulls off these jobs to see a Wong Kar Wai Christopher Doyle, you know, collab with that plot all the way through. I would love to see that story. Um, yeah. I but know I, I think it's it's interesting too because I was probably nineteen the first time I saw this movie. So like, as like a nineteen-year-old boy who's interested in like movies and video games and stuff, like clearly an in for me was that the plot is like this lurid, like, yeah, everything's got to be hitmen and contract killers. And, you know, like, think about all those movies, like 19, 20-year-old boys like, like Fight Club and like Smoke and Aces and like Boondock Saints and stuff like that. That was definitely an in for me because I was just so into sort of, you know, my brand at the time yeah. of, of, of being a young man. But I think well, there's a reason why this one stuck and the others are movies I like watched once, maybe twice, and then, you know, 
hastily forget about afterwards. There, there's a reason why this one stuck, even if kind of the luridness of the plot is what wrote me in, you know. It's funny because all the movies you named, even though I do love Fight Club, but all the movies you named, we used to have a name for that in school. Do you remember what that uh, name was, Jake? Uh, it was The List, it was right? just The List. Capital yeah. T, capital <laughs> L. The List. Because this was the movie that every young sophomore film production student, yeah. these were the ones they wanted to make. We need flickering fluorescent lights. We need yeah. <laughs> like, like Fight Club. It was it was Fight Club, Boondock Saints, Requiem for a Dream. I I I'm struggling to think of other ones. I can't think like, of my sort of but... Clockwork Orange, but like Clockwork Orange is awesome. It's yeah. just like people that just like it because, like, you know, it was controversial. The point or, is, or Wong Kar Wai has no place on the list. No, but I think it's, it, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's really funny that a couple minutes ago you were you were talking about how stylized Fallen Angels is, and, and I really respond to it in this movie. I wouldn't call it pretentious. I would call it no. over-stylized. Yes. But... I also think someone like Darren Aronofsky is over stylized to the point where I don't get anything out of it. And I think it's no surprise that like my favorite film by him is The Wrestler, which definitely has some of his like trademarks, but like comparing the filmmaking style of The Wrestler to something like Requiem for a Dream is like night and day, yeah. you know, in terms of like how much he amps it up. Yeah. So, even, even just think, watch, watch the fountain or mother and then watch the wrestler and see if that's the same yeah. filmmaker. It's wild. And, yeah. and just to, just to jump on that bandwagon, the wrestler is also my favorite of his, though I mm-hmm. do like a lot of his others, but that's a good distinction real quick that he is yeah. over stylized and he does go so far that one can have that reaction. And, right. uh, and I like a more subdued Darren Aronofsky as well. Uh, personally, mm-hmm. Um, but I do like when he gets wild as well. Uh, Wong Kar Wai is there is definitely much more intention behind it, um, and and I want to clarify not that you're saying this, but um, I don't think Wong Kar Wai is pretentious at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is that um, that awareness of the camera in Fallen Angels that at times, though I loved it, felt like distracting to me, and it sucks because. I'm sitting here, and I want to just praise this movie straight up. And if anybody goes to my letterbox, you can look at my diary. This is a positive rating. I like this movie. Um, but yeah, that that was, since you brought it up, just going back to that, that was something that stood out to me. And, and if I were the 19-year-old kid that watched this, I would have thought that was so cool because no one mm, does yeah. that. And then you see yeah. a bunch of movies do that shit, and you're like, that's super lame. And then you see Wong Kar Wai do it, and you're like, well, it's not lame, but I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I definitely think there's probably something to like, you know, like you could just find this on Wikipedia. So it's not like I'm keeper of the lore or anything like that. But Wong Kar Wai was like super burned out after doing Ashes of Time, which is like this yeah. wuxia, like epic, this, you know, that took him forever. And it just it was like a big headache. He wanted to do the exact opposite. He just wanted to run into the streets and like make something with his actor friends. And somehow the movie is like so, both of them together, the visual styles are like so kind of loose, even though Fallen Angels is like, you know, amped up in its sort of freneticness. You you get that feeling watching both of those movies that these were just like, like Doyle said in the interview, they're just like, they just went in the streets and got it done. And so I think, it, it never feels like they 
it never feels like they were out of ideas. It never feels like these decisions were made because of deadlines or because of necessity. All the decisions feel organic. So even if that leads to a situation where Fallen Angels, the experience of watching it, it's like, wow, it has so much energy and it's exhausting and it's hyper-stylized. It feels like they every single decision was organic when they were there, when they were in the spaces, when they were in the streets, in the restaurants, in the apartments. And I think that's one of the reasons why it holds up the way that it does. Chung King too, you know. Yeah, he, I mean... He's just one of those guys that even whenever he officially retires, he's currently working on a TV show, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, when he retires or, you know, God forbid, when he dies, people are going to look back at the legacy that he has established as a filmmaker. And uh, he's just going to have that special place in history where it's like these are Wong Kar Wai movies. No one else does them like him. He is kind of a, a he provides kind of a unique experience, both visually um, and in the way that he tells these stories about these people, uh, that there's just something special about him that I that I really love. And and before we kind of close out here, I just want to give you an opportunity. If there's anything else that you wanted to say about either Chunking Express, Fallen Angels, or both uh, combined, or just about Wong Kar Wai in general, did you have mm-hmm. anything else that you wanted to touch on before we kind of finish up? Yeah, I guess just one final note talking about what you said just now and how I totally agree with you. I, I think... Uh, one cool thing about his style and the legacy he's leaving is I actually think that there is something of a paper trail for future generations to like discover his work. I know we've talked about this privately a lot, but like it's very easy if you love film to get kind of scared at like what's what might happen over the next couple decades. And any interpretation of me saying that that you're thinking of right now is like probably what I mean. Just <laughs> after COVID, the, the you know what I mean? After COVID, theater's shutting down, more people are streaming, less pe- people seem less motivated to seek unique things out, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. Repeat ad nauseum, whatever you want. But I actually think like I brought up Instagram. Uh, uh, I brought that up a couple of times on this podcast. And I actually think that's a really good example of like a positive part of like the climate shifting a little bit. Because I could say if I was 19 today, I would absolutely be discovering films through like weird screen caps people were posting on like Instagram and TikTok and stuff. I mean, I want to act like, oh, I wouldn't do that shit. But it's like, oh, no, I absolutely would if I was that age now. Yeah. So I think one thing that's kind of cool is like a bunch of stuff is changing right now. And it makes me very nervous about the future, just as just as a guy that like fears change and likes things the way that I know them and stuff. But I think Wong Kar Wai is, is, is his, his films are so, so visually rich that I think him more than other filmmakers has kind of set a place at the table for himself to, to, to be continually discovered by future generations because whatever tech we have to link us, whether it's social media or some weird future bullshit that Elon Musk is going to throw at us. I, I, I think that Wong Kar Wai's films really benefit themselves to exactly what you're saying. Sometimes all it takes is like seeing an image and being like, what is this from? And I think because of that, people are going to be seeking him out and discovering him on their own for a really long time to come. Yeah. He is um, a really unique experiential provider. Uh, And I I have to say, um, you know, shout out to the Criterion Collection for keeping his films alive and, and, you know, bright, bright, 
vibrant HD yeah. uh, in their Blu-ray box set. Uh, if you want to, if you're interested in checking out Wong Kar Wai, go check out the Criterion channel. Uh, we are not sponsored by, but I will happily take your money, Criterion. So by all means, uh, sponsor the show. Uh, but the I'll Criterion take just a shirt, just yeah. uh, send me a shirt. That's all I need. Shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the Criterion Channel uh, has all of his movies up right now. Uh, I'm sure that you can rent them elsewhere. I only know of the Criterion Channel off the spot. Um, but uh, I will take time in the outro of the show if I find some other places to make sure you guys know where to see it. Um, but yeah, that is our take. That is Jake and I's take on uh, Chunking Express and Fallen Angels. Uh, hopefully, if you uh, guys have seen it and you agree or disagree, hopefully you will definitely let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Austin Glidden. You can also find Medium Cool on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, just type in Medium Cool and we'll pop up and let us know what you think. Uh, Jake, as always, a complete pleasure, my friend. Yeah, same. Thanks again for having me on, man. Hey, thank you. All right, everybody. That is our show for today. This is episode 40. We've been doing 40 of these things. That's crazy. It's actually like 43 or 45 or something because of our bonus. But the point is, we're moving along. We're getting somewhere finally. All right, next week is episode 41. It'll come out on July 20th. That's next Tuesday, everybody. Don't forget where uh, Joe and Sam, Sam the movie man, Watermeyer, Joe and Sam are going to join me to celebrate Paul Verhoeven's birthday. Listener's choice poll is complete. It's in. And that answer between RoboCop Total Recall and Starship Troopers, what was voted in? RoboCop. We're going to be talking about RoboCop next week. I'll have a few things before the film to talk about as well. Some other movies things like that the following week i'll be having matthew sosi back on we're going to talk about bergman cries and whispers and scenes from a marriage in our uh, ingmar bergman cinema marathon that we're doing and then the following week uh, we're going to be doing the last installment of our ingmar bergman cinema uh, marathon with fanny and alexander i'll also i plan at least on doing my top five favorite bergman films based on what i've seen not just in this but just ever that i've ever seen because uh, I've seen several that we're not covering here on on uh, the podcast. So uh, that'll be fun. Hopefully I can revisit some of those too and uh, kind of have more to work with. Uh, but yeah, so that's what's coming up these next few weeks. But next week, RoboCop, that's going to be a great time. I hope you guys will hang out and enjoy it. Um, again, I also hope that you go check out One Car Y. You know, all of his stuff's on the Criterion channel right now. Go check that out. But for now, we love you. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy.